Welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today we are discussing the African diaspora in Tudor England. Let's get started. Dear World Civ students, British history has been tied to Africa since Roman times. After all, North Africa and Britain were together in the Roman Empire for about 500 years. They shared a common language, Latin, religions, whether Christian or pagan, and culture. Just see the Roman baths and the ruins of both regions today. If we were in an ancient history class and not World Civ I, we would spend more time on this. That said, our story, if we properly tell it, does begin with at least a mention of Roman legionaries from North Africa keeping watch at Hadrian's Wall in the north of modern England. And we've got a picture of Hadrian's Wall there in the letter. On to the Tudor period where we are in class now. Major textbooks in discussing the Tudor dynasty and the golden age it conjured for England in the late 1500s and early 1600s do not discuss or even show the lives of people of African descent in England. It's a whitewashed history. As historian, as historian Miranda Kaufman explains in her recent history, Black Tudors, which came out in 2017. Even, re, even in recent years, for example, as Kaufman points out in the 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremonies in London, this pageant of British history shows people of African descent coming from the West Indies for the first time in 1948 from Jamaica on the Empire Windrush ship. Yet there were people from Africa living in England in the late 1500s and early 1600s, and reintroducing them to the history of this period is vital in showing us a more complex and certainly a more interesting British and world history. So who were the Black Tudors? Portuguese slave traders brought the first enslaved people from Africa forcibly and against their will in 1444, and the transatlantic trade, which would cause so many deaths, and such suffering for centuries first began in 1504. Accordingly, the first people of African descent living in England in the Tudor era were just as likely to be from Southern Europe or the Caribbean as from West Africa itself. John Hawkins, a famed English pirate of the late 1500s, made several slaving voyages to England with the last in 1569, But there was no widespread or common slave trade in England until the 1640s, well after the Tudor era had ended. English law mostly created from court decisions written by judges which collectively comprise the common law came to stand for the proposition that, quote, England was too pure an air for a slave to breathe in. That is, as Kaufman explains, if you were enslaved, but you made it to England You could count on being free once there. Slavery was never legal in England, never on the books, recognized legally in courts, never in legal codes. This is unlike the American colonies, of course, and France with this 1679 Code Noir on slavery, or the laws of Spain, Portugal, or the various Italian city-states of the time. Kaufman focuses on this period before England holds a bunch of colonies and is a bastion of relative freedom. Now, one sharp critic of Black Tudors, Kaufman's work, writes in The Guardian, Kaufman does leave a stark question hanging in the air. 
How did the English go from this period of relative acceptance to becoming the biggest slave traders out there? Kaufman examines the lives of 10 different people of African descent and black tutors and doesn't squarely answer this question or this critique. We'll discuss four of these accounts in this letter to you. To begin, the first historical subject we'll discuss is John Blank, a trumpeter at the courts of King Henry VII and King Henry VIII. Blank is noticeable in the Westminster tournament role. There's a picture of it in the letter. A tapestry of a famous royal tournament held in 1511. In fact, his appearance in this tapestry is the, quote, only identifiable portrait of an African in Tudor England, according to Kaufman. He's shown with darker skin than his fellow trumpeters and in a turban. While this might lead scholars to think he was from North Africa and Muslim, this might not be the case, as Henry VIII liked to dress his musicians and court people up in various regional costumes for specialized festivals and parties. John Blank's first appearance in the historical record is in December 1507, as he is listed as being paid 12 pounds per year on the royal payroll for Henry VII, which is double that of a typical farm worker's yearly wage, and triple the wages of an average servant in general. Blank was one of seven official trumpeters at the Tudor court, and this was an important job. Trumpeters were expected to play at tournaments, funerals, executions, banquets, weddings, coronations, battles, sea voyages, and at major parties at Christmas time and the New Year. When Prince Arthur, Henry VIII's older brother, who died young, allowing Henry VIII to become king, when Arthur was betrothed to Catherine of Aragon in 1501, the trumpeters had to play from the moment Catherine left her house nonstop until she made it all the way to the altar, which is a long time. In the Westminster Tapestry, Blank is playing a double-curved trumpet, and these were made in England at the time in London near Guildhall on what is today called Trump Street, not named for the American president, but because Trump because trumpets used to be made there. And I've uh, snipped in a couple Google Street images of the city of London, pulled back a little bit, and the um, detailed view of where Trump Street is. It's possible that John Blank came to England in 1501 with Catherine of Aragon when she arrived to marry Prince Arthur. After all, Catherine's parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain, were great supporters of the arts and of musicians especially, and they had many trumpeters and musicians who came from Africa as well. Further, in 1550, 7.5% of the population was of African descent in the city of Sevilla in Spain, so many people from Africa both free and enslaved, were living in Spain, uh, coming from modern-day Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Gambia, Mali, and Mauritania in West Africa. John Blank was a free man and, of course, on the payroll as a court musician for the Tudors. He played at Henry Henry VII's funeral in April 1509, and then soon after at Henry VIII's joint coronation with Catherine that May. Henry VIII, as mentioned above, supported musicians strongly. He himself played the organ, the lute, and the recorder. A lute is pictured below in the 1570 painting, Death and the Maiden. Kaufman argues that Blank was a higher-status royal employee. As Henry gifted him four and a half yards of cloth, the average gift to servants was three, and it was scarlet cloth, not red. 
Scarlet apparently outranked red as a color of rank at court for workers. Henry also gave Blanc a raise when he asked for it after Dominic Justinian, an Italian fellow trumpeter, died and left Blanc with a heavier workload. Not only did Henry VIII grant the request, but he doubled Blanc's wages. Finally, Henry, as he typically did, gave Blanc a nice wedding gift when his trumpeter got married in 1512, gifting him a violet cloth gown and bonnet hat. So, what happened to John Blanc? We don't really know. He doesn't appear on the next list of royal trumpeters in 1614. Maybe he died of disease or in battle, or maybe he left court when he got married and took up a trade. For example, perhaps he married a widow and took up her husband's occupation, which apparently court musicians did frequently. His fate is lost to history for now. And when we come back on Purdy's podcast, we'll hear about Jacques Francis, salvage diver. You're on on Purdy's podcast. Thanks a lot. See you soon. Hi, class, and you're back on with Purdy's podcast. We're talking about the African diaspora in Tudor England. Jacques Francis, salvage diver. Francis's life is fascinating, both for his work as a diver and for the fact that he's the first person of African descent to give testimony in an English court of law. Francis's work as a salvage diver also raises interesting questions, such as how could divers retrieve stuff from the seafloor before the advent of modern gear? And then secondly, why were Europeans such terrible swimmers and divers, while people from West Africa were considered the greatest swimmers and divers in the world at the time? In 1546, Jacques Francis was about 18 years old, living in Southampton, working as a salvage diver for a, for a Venetian boss named Peter Paolo Corsi. We don't know which island he was from, as Francis never specified in court, but he did say he was born on an island off the coast of West Africa. Kaufman assumes Francis met Corsi in Venice, Italy, as Corsi was from Venice and many people from West Africa, both free and enslaved, lived in Venice with the strong tradition being that many worked as gondoliers on the famed Venice canals. As Jesse Childs, a writer with the Financial Times of London, relates, in Gentile Bellini's painting Miracle of the Cross at the Bridge of San Lorenzo from 1500, I've got a picture of it in the letter, a black man in a loincloth is poised to dive into the canal to recover the true cross. West Africans were considered expert swimmers in the 16th century, and their reputation extended far beyond Venice. In the summer of 1545, France was at war with England, and a large French fleet sailed into the English Channel with an army on board to invade England. King Henry VIII was near death at this point, two years away from it actually but he led his own navy into the channel to fight the French. The big 91-gun battleship Mary Rose sailed out of Portsmouth Harbor to join the English fleet, but didn't sail very far at all before tragedy struck. The wind was very light, and the water was calm when the Mary Rose left port, but conditions worsened rapidly. Because her gun ports were wide open, no one thought a storm was coming. The rocking and rolling waves crashed into these open holes in the ship and flooded it. 
All the loose cannonballs rolled to one side of the ship too, dipping it so far down on one side that water rushed in even more furiously. The ship sunk fast with only 60 of 500 sailors surviving. Hardly any English sailors in the Tudor Navy knew how to swim. The royal physician, Andrew Board, advised that bathing, quote, allowed the venomous airs to enter and destroyeth the lively spirits in man and enfeebleth the body. With this kind of expert advice being bandied about, few Englishmen and women were doing much bathing, let alone swimming, in these times. After the battle, and with England safed, Henry VIII ordered that Mary Rose be raised, if possible, and if not possible, then at the very least, as much of her cargo and equipment be salvaged. Each of her 91 guns was worth a lot of money, for example, and teams of salvage divers, including Corsi's, soon went to work on the job. And there's a picture of the Mary Rose uh, from an illustrated volume at the time. It's a lovely picture in the letter. It was not possible to raise the ship. That wouldn't be accomplished until 1982, but Jacques Francis and the other seven divers on Corsi's team over a period of four years were able to recover some of the guns and lots of the equipment. It must have taken a lot of physical courage not only to make such a deep dive over and over again, but to do so knowing that the moldering skeletons of the dead sailors lay below to be seen on each dive. At the end of their salvage work, Peter Paolo Corsi was sued for fraud, and Francis was called by the defense as a character witness for Corsi, and to vouch for his good work and good character too. These trial records are the source for some of what we know about this kind of salvage work. Francis must have been a very experienced and well-trained diver, as the Mary Rose lay deep below the water's surface. An untrained swimmer, can dive 25 to 30 feet at maximum before they begin to burst their eardrums, hurt their sinuses. Indeed, on emerging from such dives, regular ordinary swimmers will often bleed from their ears or nose, even from their eyes. Yet trained deep sea divers such as Francis must have been able somehow to equalize the pressure in their eardrums in order to stay safe on dives of up to 90 feet below the surface. In the 1540s, of course, no modern diving equipment existed yet. Diving bells had been used in 1535 for the first time to, ret to retrieve the ancient Roman emperor Caligula's barge from the bottom of Lake Nemi in Italy. And there were small breathing apparatuses, apparati, I don't know, that allowed divers to breathe small amounts of oxygen to buy them a minute or two. Yet for the most part, free divers had to rely on their own life training and guts. Kaufman argues that Francis was from the island of Arguin, off the coast of West Africa, which the Portuguese used as a major base for their slaving operations. The islanders had well-deserved reputations for being skilled at diving for treasure from the many ships that wrecked nearby. While this was a major site in the slave trade, Jacques Francis was a free man, we know, because only free men, not slaves, serfs, or indentured servants, could legally give testimony in English courts of law. Francis also states in the trial that he was giving testimony of his own free will. As with John Blank, we're not sure what became of Francis, as his historical record trail ends with his boss's trial at the Court of Admiralty in Southwark a neighborhood in London, 
Southwark, coincidentally, is where we're headed next to discuss another man we think is from West Africa by way of Antwerp, one of the many successful new silk weavers of the Tudor era. So next up, it's Silk, it's Southwark, and you're on with Purdy's podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Purdy's Podcast. Next up, let's talk about the silk trade and reasonable black men. Silk Weaver in Tudor era London. First, Miranda Kaufman explains that reasonable black men's last name does not necessarily come from his darker skin tone than his white English neighbors. In fact, surnames were already pretty much set in place a couple of centuries previously, indeed around the time of the Norman Conquest of 1066. Evidently, at least eight other men with the last name Blackman have been located in records from the late 1500s, and all but reasonable are white. Reasonable is described as a blackamoor in the historical records of the time, which was a common term of usage in Tudor times, referring to skin color, and the Moors, the only people from Africa with extensive contact in Europe for centuries as they had conquered Spain. However, this term is definitely a racial slur in our century and has been for quite some time. Reasonable's first name might be an advertising or marketing thing, as he was a silk weaver and might have been trying to associate his name with fair dealing and good prices. Or, as with many Christian families during the Tudor era and afterward, especially among Puritans, he might have been given a virtue-themed Christian name, as we see with names like Prudence, like the Beatles song, Dear Prudence, Faith, Chastity, and Felicity among girls. Reasonable was financially successful, at least moderately so, as men had to show the church that they were able to support a new family before they were allowed to be married. He appears in 1579 in St. Savior's Parish Register as living south of the, of the, river, of the river Thames on the west side of St. Savior's Parish in Southwark and was a member of the parish. St. Saviour's Parish in the late 1500s had its boundaries from London Bridge to the west through today's Borough Market all the way to the Tate Modern Museum. Below there is a riverside photo from Architectural, Architectural Review. By 1587, Reasonable had moved upward socially, possibly, because he became a member of St. Olaf's Church on Tooley Street, and this was a more prosperous parish in a higher-income neighborhood. St. Olaf's boundaries ran from London Bridge along Tooley Street to Tower Bridge, including where City Hall and the Shard, a pointy modern glass tower, sit today. Class, by 1600, 20,000 people lived in Southwark, which, is, which was a third of its total population, total popula population of the city. The Southwark's residents, of this 20,000 people, about 20% were immigrants, mainly coming from Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Spain, and Italy, as we'll see later on in this letter. There's a great deal of resentment from locals of immigrants. It's not racial resentment. The immigrant, immigrants are coming from other white parts of Europe. Um, the resentment is of white immigrants in the late 1500s. There were very, very few immigrants of African descent. As we'll see, Kaufman indicates that she thinks 
Reasonable Blackman came from Antwerp, and she has good reasons for that. It was a mixed-use neighborhood, Southwark, with lots of creative industries, some light industries like silk weaving, for example, and entertainment galore. Indeed, the saying then was that in Southwark, quote, every fourth house is an alehouse. Several of London's jails were in the neighborhood, too, including the Clink, which got its nickname for the sound the cell doors made on closing and locking, and that's still a nickname today for prisons and jails. Silk was a new and growing industry in the Tudor age. The Moors had brought silk clothing and silk weaving to Spain in the 700s when they conquered it. Then the trade had moved to Italy in the 1200s and to Northern Europe later on. In the 1500s, Antwerp, a city and port in the Netherlands, was the major center of silk weaving and trade in Europe. Spain ruled the Netherlands and in the late 1500s tried to force its Protestants to become Catholics. Many of them accordingly fled to Protestant England, and many of these Protestant refugees were silk weavers, including Kaufman Guess's reasonable black men. Albrecht Dürer, famed for his woodblock prints, sketched several people of African descent from the early 1500s in Antwerp. And while Kaufman does not argue that Reasonable or Catalina of Almondsbury, discussed below, are the subject of these sketches, she does use Durer's works as evidence that both likely came to England from Antwerp. Queen Elizabeth I got her first pair of silk stockings, which are pictured in the letter, in 1561 as a present from John Dudley, and she raved about them, writing, I like silk stockings well. They are pleasant, fine, and delicate. Henceforth, I will wear no more cloth stockings. Mrs. Alice Montague made the queen silks for her. It was a kind of side job for her as she was a noblewoman and lady at court as her main occupation. When the queen and everyone started wearing silk, the nobility followed, and then the wealthy merchant class, and then everyone else in England with any money at all was trying to wear silk. This was controversial and even sometimes illegal. As according to a 1533 law, you weren't allowed to wear silk unless you could prove you had an income of 100 pounds per year. That was a lot of money back then, as we've already seen John Blank's income was nowhere near that, and he was an esteemed court musician. And we'll read below about Catalina of Almondsbury, a dairy maid whose worldly goods in total, on her death, only added up to six pounds sterling. Reasonable Blackman, prospering in the silk trade, had his son Edward baptized in February 1587 at St. Olaf's, and then his brother Edmund and sister Jane followed quickly. Pardon me. Uh, yes, brother Edmund, sister Jane. Thank you. We have no records of Reasonable's wife, as there were very few people of African descent in London in the 1500s. It's likely she was a white English woman also from Southwark. England had no laws against marriage between men and women of different races at the time, unlike the American colonies and unlike other parts of Europe as well. The laws passed in the American colonies, for example, in the late 1600s against outlawing marriages between people of different races, most of those stayed on the books well into the 20th century, and it wasn't until 1967 that the U.S. Supreme Court declared them firmly unconstitutional in the Loving case. Reasonable's family, off to such a great start in the 1500s, was then decimated by disease. An outbreak of bubonic plague rolled through London in the summer of 1592. 
St. Olaf's parish, parish, the church below is shown in the letter, saw many fatalities among its parishioners. And we see a mortality curve that we've seen in so many historical pandemics in St. Olaf's parish in 1592. 26 parishioners died in July that year, in August, 180. 248 died in September, 158 in November, in October rather, and in November, as it began to wane, 96 died. Plague caused much social unrest. The authorities blamed the common people for not exercising proper care, and the common people blamed immigrants for bringing the disease to Southwark. On September 10th, 1592, for example, the Privy Council, an advisory group back then to the monarch, wrote to the mayor of London. Quote, by the weekly death certificates, it doth appear that the present infection within the city of London doth greatly increase, growing as well by the carelessness of the people as by the want of good order to see the sound severed from the sick. Here the council was admonishing the mayor to ensure sick people were sequestered from healthy people, as this was not being done successfully. The Tudors had little modern medical knowledge and little germ theory, of course and the microscope was yet to be invented and vaccines 200 years off in the future. But they knew masses of people gathered with sick, mixed in with healthy, that helped spread disease. People were not fond of quarantine measures then, no more than they are today. One of St. Olaf's leaders, a curate named James Balford, wrote that quarantine people, quote, think it hell to be so long shut up from company and their business. Balmford warned his parishioners that the sick must be content to forbear a while, since in the plague they usually mend or end in short time. Some of London's own social distancing and public health measures in 1592 were, number one, they closed theaters with some in London staying closed for two years, for example. Of course, they didn't close alehouses as ale was thought to ward off the plague. Number two, a 1578 government guide offered remedies involving vinegar and herbs, cinnamon. People were advised to eat more butter, which was thought to ward off the disease, and to burn the air, to purge it. Third, they killed stray dogs, thought to carry the disease. They were looking at the wrong mammal. They should have been looking at the rats. Number four, they ordered the clothes of the dead burned and disposed of instantly. Five, they lit bonfires in city streets as burning the air was thought to cleanse it of the plague. Number six, undertakers scheduled funerals and burials for dusk when there was as little foot traffic as possible as attendance was, be was to be discouraged. Almford worried about this in particular, reporting that, quote, the poorer sort, yea, women with young children, will flock to burials, and which is worse stand over open graves where sundry are buried together that all the world may see that they fear not the plague. Reasonable son Edmund, five years old, and daughter Jane, two years old, were buried in St. Olaf's churchyard in 1592, having died of the plague. In other parts of London, Kaufman found records of at least three other Africans listed in church records as having died of the plague as well. In all, 8.5% of London's population, it is estimated, died from this outbreak alone. Reasonable Blackman disappears from the historical record with the burial of his little children at St. Olaf's. 
Kaufman hazards a theory that an Ed that an Edward Blackmore, another London silk weaver, with his marriage to Jean Collet of Stepney in later years recorded. Perhaps this was reasonable son Edward, she posits, but we don't know for sure. Maybe we'll never know. Um, one last segment to go in Purdy's podcast on the African diaspora in Tudor England. When we come back, we're going out to the countryside to check in on the life of Isabella of Almondsbury. You're on with Purdy's podcast. Thank you. Hello, class. Let's wrap up our last segment on the African diaspora in Tudor, England. Of the four historical persons I'm reporting on from Miranda Kaufman's research in Black Tudors, only one is a woman in this letter. Catalina of Almondsbury, an independent, single, and free dairy maid living in what was then already an old and established village. Kaufman tells Catalina's story to ensure that people from the countryside receive some historical attention just as city and dwellers do elsewhere in her book. The River Severn wends its way through Gloucestershire, and right near Almondsbury, since Roman times, there has been a river crossing there. Since the early 1800s, the Aust Ferry has conducted people across the river on the way to Bristol or Wales. Almondsbury is seven miles north of Bristol and is listed in Domesday Book, a census conducted first in 1086 by William the Conqueror, who wanted to learn all about his newly conquered kingdom. In the late 1500s and early 1600s, Catalina, who we know owned at least one cow, likely grazed her cow on the village green. Dairy work was strictly gendered, meaning that nearly all of it was done only by women. And I've got uh, an a fun picture of a modern doll wearing a Tudor-era milkmaid costume, which is really cute. So check it out in the letter. Um, Avalon picked that picture out for us. A cow of that time, on average, gave a gallon of milk a day in milking sessions, usually at dawn and dusk. This milk could be used for drinking, making cheese and butter or cream, and the excess milk could be sold to villagers or exchanged for goods. Catalina's cow, as Kaufman points out, meant financial in independence for her. A list of deceased persons' goods from 1560 to 1600, showed that 75% of domestic and agricultural workers owned at least one cow. People often name their cows. We have one record where a father left his cow named Phil Pale to his daughter. Ha ha ha. But these names are only very rarely recorded. Catalina's cow did not have a name in the inventory of her worldly goods. We only have one set of historical records relating to Catalina of Almondsbury, the list of her worldly goods compiled after her death, which were sold by the administrator of her meager estate at Bristol Cathedral. Kaufman explains that we have a wealth of information on people of poor and middle-class backgrounds during this period, period from probate records, as there are a million inventories gathered from 1580 to 1720. Studying the lists of worldly goods held by common people offers new insights into their daily lives in the Tudor period and after. 
Catalina was single and unmarried, but then 30% of adult English women at the time were single and unmarried too. We don't know the origin of her name, but it's possible she came from Spain with her name's similarity to Catalan or Catalonia. Kaufman assumes that Catalina came originally from Bristol because there are records of at least 16 people of African descent in Bristol parish registers from 1560 to 1640. Perhaps Kaufman muses, Catalina originally worked for a wealthy family around Almondsbury, like a 1500s Downton Abbey situation, and then secured her independence by buying or being gifted the cow. Catalina's list of possessions at her death in 1625 were one cow, one bed, one bolster, one pillow, one pair of blankets, one sheet, one quill, four little pots, metal deep and round on three legs so they could stand over a cooking fire, one pewter candlestick. This world was only lit by sunlight and candlelight. One tin bottle, one dozen spoons. Forks were not common or even known that much in England at the time, having only been import having only been imported from Italy for the first time in 1610 or so. Three earthen dishes, two dozen trenchers, wooden slates you'd put food on instead of plates. One tablecloth, one coffer, two little boxes, and her wearing apparel. Everything together, all of her clothes that is, was worth two pounds sterling, her clothes. Kaufman, using the list of clothes provided to women in the Jamestown, Virginia colony in the early 1600s, assumed Catalina wore a petticoat, waistcoat, cloth stockings, an apron, just like the picture of the milkmaid above in the letter. Kaufman observes she owned no furniture, Catalina, so perhaps she shared a house or lived as a boarder in someone else's house. It was uncommon then for single women to live in their own house. Only 5% of single women under the age of 45 headed their own house. One half lived with one parent or both parents. One third served as servants. I'm sorry, one third lived as servants in the houses in which they served. Um, They had their own rooms in the places they worked. Five to 10% were lodgers. Three to 7% lived with some other relative other than their parent. Catalina's bed was probably a glorified sack, full of leftover wool shavings, odds and ends, even straw. This is where we get the expression to hit the sack, because most beds of common people in Tudor-era England were actual sacks. People slept above the sheets, not under them, as the sheets protected them from being pricked by straws sticking through the sack. Her bolster cushion likely was a long stuffed pillow used to support the sleeper's head in a bed. Pillows were a new item for English people in this era. William Harrison wrote in 1577 that the old men of his day recalled sleeping, quote, with a good round log under their heads instead of a pillow. Kaufman assumes Catalina was buried at St. Mary's Church in Almondsbury, but the records only exist from the year 1653 onward, and she died in 1625, so we don't know for sure. Most people didn't make a will in Tudor times and hardly any single women did, with no family to provide for, and very few things to give away, it was not a high-priority task. Women's estates were usually handled by other women, and this was true for Catalina, as a local woman, a local widow, Mrs. Helen Ford, sold her goods at Bristol Cathedral on May 27, 1625. The proceeds would have gone to pay for her funeral and burial, 
with the remainder to the crown and a modest fee for the widow Ford. All of Catalina's goods came to a total value of six pounds, nine shillings, sixpence. Not much. Kaufman acknowledges this was a humble life that Catalina led, but imagining a woman of African descent living out in the countryside changes conventional views of English history. As Kaufman says, she writes, quote, in the everyday motions of sleeping, preparing food, milking a cow, and lighting a candle in the morning, and lighting a candle again in the evening, it was a life no different to so many other inhabitants of the English countryside. Well, you've been on with Purdy's podcast, and again, this was the African diaspora in the era of the Tudors. Thanks so much for joining us today, and have a great afternoon.